Hello and welcome to New Books and Technology. I am your host, Jasmine McNeely. You know, one of the inherently problematic things about a discussion of technology and its impacts on society is that many times we come at this from a very Western or global Northern perspective. And when we talk about things like the digital divide and lack of access to information and information technology, a lot of the times we leave out those in developing countries and their perspective and how they're using technology. So to help us with a discussion on this, today we have David Nimmer, who is a doctoral candidate at Indiana University studying social informatics. Welcome to the show, David. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to have you. So you have this new book, Favela Digital, The Other Side of Technology. Before we get into the book, I want to know a little more about you. So perhaps you can give us some of your background. I'm from Brazil. Mm -hmm. I'm from a city called Victoria. It's the state capital of Espírito Santo. Um, In Brazil, I went to college for business, and I also got a a bachelor's degree in computer science. Mm -hmm. And while I was... Um, pursuing my degree in computer science, I had the opportunity to um, hold several digital inclusion classes, which we would go to um, marginalized areas in my hometown. So we could teach kids how to use a computer and all that. Um, And then I went on and graduated from college and went to Germany to do my master's in computer science. Mm -hmm. And by the time I was done, I was completely over coding and dealing with math and science. And I, you know, I had that moment that I thought to myself, you know, what kind of difference am I making to society? What kind of, um, what, what, what can I do actually to help, you know? And computer science it wasn't really doing it for me. So I found out about this PhD in social informatics mm-hmm. and I saw, you know, and, through this PhD, a way to um, make a difference. So ever since I joined the program, I've been um, interested in issues related to the digital divide, digital inclusion, and not only that, but uh, actually interested in providing a, a better life experience to marginalized people and see if technology can actually help them or not. Mm-hmm. So, so with this project, Favela Digital, you went back to Brazil um, and spent six months, was it? Correct. Collecting information? Yeah. Yes. So I had the opportunity. So the PhD actually gave me an opportunity to go back to my hometown and do, you know, some difference. So um, I lived in a slum, which is about 20-minute drive from where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, stay there for six months, and it was quite an adventure because you know these areas are known to be uh, violent. You know, crimes rates are very high, um, and you know the, the the presence of the drug cartel is very strong in these areas. And right now, it's it's even worse because, as we know, Brazil is going to host the World Cup in right. two weeks. And the government and the police, they have been cleaning up some areas um, around Rio and Sao Paulo because they're going to host the World Cup. And Victoria is not going to host any of the games. So the drug lords that were able to um, run away from the cops and survive, they've been 
relocating themselves in, in nearby cities, which is the case of Victoria. So now they are in the slums of Victoria fighting, you know, against the drug lords there. So doing field work in such area was a, a lot of, uh, um, I saw a lot of exciting moments and <laughs> it was an interesting experience. Well, you can say you're kind of like a academic Indiana Jones, but in uh, <laughs> Brazil, right. if you want. So great. So the final product, or the finished, one of the finished products is this Favela Digital. And what was the impetus for this book? Like, how did you decide I wanted to take some of my experiences while I was staying in that favela and you know, create a book out of it. Right. Um, the story behind this book is quite interesting as well. So I was doing my field work and, you know, I would take some photos with my personal camera and I would publish some on Facebook and my friends on Facebook would they, they would find it really interesting. Even my friends from Brazil. So just to give you an idea of how disconnected these two worlds are within, you know, the same area. And I got a lot of attention from the local press because of my research. Mm-hmm. And I was approached by, you know, the, the, the book publisher. And he's like, well, we got to publish your, your work. And I said, well, I can't. I need to first finish my dissertation <laughs> and then I can write a book. It's not like I can, you know, just write a book about my field work. There's too many things in between that I need to get done with before I actually write something. Um, so then he's like, well, we got to do something. This is so timely. This is so interesting. People are really becoming, you know, interesting to know what's going on in this side of the town. Mm-hmm. And then he gave me some time to think about it. And I did. And I was like, well, maybe we can do maybe a photo book. And he got really interested in, in, in the project. And what is more interesting is that, uh, I came just by the time when he approached me, I, got to know this NGO in the slums of Victoria mm-hmm. that they rescue people from the streets of the slums and train them to become photographers and journalists. Oh, wow. wow. So then I had a, a, a partnership with them and proposed, you know, if you, if they could allow their, um, um, you know, the, the people that they rescued and trained them to be photographers, if they could walk around in the slums with me for a month taking photos and the photos in the book would be all theirs and, and you know, all the credits would be given to them. So the NGO thought it was perfect because then you would give them some sort of professional experience. Um, so they took the photos. Some of the photos, I mean, the plan was to have like 60 photos just taken by them. But sometimes they found it hard to, you know, to get a photo that I really wanted. So I took myself, took the photos out. So I only have three photos in that book, but the text is all mine. But they took, um, they participated in the whole process of designing the book, like choosing the photos, editing the photos. Um, and even with the text that I um, wrote myself, I allowed them to participate and even to become more aware of what the book is all about. Um, I even um, help them learn a little bit of English because this book is in Portuguese and English. So this was also a good opportunity for them to learn a little bit of English. So it was more of a participatory um, um, approach to this book. 
and we just sent the final file to the to the publisher, and they just print the book out. So we had a month to do all of that. So it was a an intense but very enlightening process. Mm-hmm. Now, besides the some of the logistical uh, issues that you were just talking about, as far as you needed to complete your your dissertation, but what do you think the importance of this book having so much visual? information in it is well um my the the plan of this book is to um as you said it's to impact people with its photos Mm -hmm. so i understand that sometimes it's hard for especially people in in, um the general public to read an academic book i understand it's hard it's even hard for us (laughs) um so i was uh and you know, I was thinking of a way to to have it short, uh, objective, and very impactful right. in a way that people would get the message and and without making too many analyses because th- those analyses would go into my dissertation. And you know, in other words, I didn't want to make the the book very boring. So, as you can see, the book is something that you would um, pick pick it up and you know see two or three photos, read one of the passages, which are you know, short, like they're about a paragraph long and really reflect on what that photo really means and what the text really means. Um, so it's actually to engage um, the general audience into knowing, you know, what, what is the, the actual relationship of people and technology? Well, how these relationships are different in the West, Western world and in places like marginalized areas like Brazil. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to shed light of these differences and, and also in these alternative ways of using um, technology because not always we um, can really predict how technology is going to be um, adopted. And this book shows really well of how differently, you know, different populations, different um, communities adopt technology. Well, well, yeah. Let's let's talk about that. So, how is the adoption or and use of technology different in some of the the favelas that you studied versus, say, your hometown, Victoria, versus Bloomington, versus any of the other cities that you've perhaps have been to? Right. So we can. Um, one of the things that I'm currently writing about is the the the, the, the phenomenon of the selfie. Right. So selfies became such. Uh, a thing right now that you, you have celebrities, you have people in the states taking um, selfies before they go, they go out, before they go drinking, before they go do something. Um, and then selfies are also a phenomenon in the slums of Brazil, but they're they have a different um, kind of meaning behind them. Um, for example, um, the as I said, the the presence of the drug cartel in the slums are very strong. Um, they're watching you, you know, all the time, even online. So some people are very afraid to write in words their feelings or even, you know, write something that somehow would um, compromise their safety because the drug cartel people could think um, this information that I shared wasn't, you know, according to their um, beliefs so they will, will come and, and talk to me. So people are afraid to suffer the consequences of writing things on, on, on their Facebook wall. Mm-hmm. So they just uh, post 
selfies to show their emotion, to, to have a sense of themselves. So it's not like they, they want to um, brag about their clothes or they want to brag about their, about their um, activity at the moment, but they really want to express the emotion that they're feeling right now without fearing the consequences of you know the drug cartel not really liking um, their words. And also, um, you know, in, in these areas, uh, education, uh, formal education is, is kind of a issue there. So people don't really go to school. We have a, a high rate of illiterate, illiterate people. Mm-hmm. So uh, because they can't write and type and read, so they use a lot of the selfies to communicate with others. Okay. And, and you know, in, the, in, the, in your book, you talk about I guess one of the um, things that we think about with, with respect to technology is the idea of empowerment um, and that technology is supposed to empower people or it can empower people. Did right. you find that or uh, how, how, how is it empowering people in the favelas or how is it disempowering people in the favelas? Right. Um, Yes, I did, and, and this is something that um, it's like the the core question of my research is how is that technology empowering? Well, if we're if we're looking into the the traditional ways, you know, the utilitarian ways of empowerment, then we won't see much because usually these measurements of empowerment are related to you know how much money you're making of using technology, you know how much education you're getting, and you really need to look into the alternative ways of empowerment or the non-utilitarian um, factors of empowerment. So, um, as, I, um, as I said, in, in the selfies, you know, they have an opportunity to show who they are, show their emotions. Also, um, they go to technology centers like telecenters and, and land houses, which are like a cyber cafe, and they go there to play games. And you would think that, you know, playing games is just a waste of time. But for them, it's a way to get away from that crazy reality they live on. So it's a way to relax, you know, and, and, and they feel um, useful because they actually see themselves doing something, which is like playing the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Facebook, people were able to um, organize protests in, in Victoria while I was there. Like during the Confederations Cup, people went on the streets and and you know complained about the problems that Brazil actually faced. And through Facebook, they were able to coordinate protests um, among themselves. Um, and in terms of um, disempowerment, you know, there is also the the issue of content creation, mm-hmm. which is actually one of the. Um, biggest issues with the digital divide like how do you make sure that the people facing the divide produce enough content to give voice to their opinions to give voice to their lives Mm -hmm. and they are very afraid to express their their opinions you know again they have um the censorship from the drug lords but they also have the censorship of society they're very afraid to post photos and 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 um, let's say opinions because they think people will mock about their Portuguese 
um, they may say, you know, my portrait is not 100% correct, so I'm not going to post anything, people will make fun of it. Mm-hmm. Or they will uh, um, fear that their posts and their photos will end up on websites that are oriented towards making fun of the poor people, which in Brazil is quite popular. So there are, um, I would say, a handful of websites that is exclusively... Um, showing this uh, bad side of technology um, use. And I said bad side with quotes. <laughs> okay. Now, you talked about these telecenters or land houses and how people go there and they go there to, to both use the technology but also to relax. So a question that pops into my mind is, is there a distinct culture surrounding these telecenters or land houses that you found? Um, a difference between the two centers? Or, or a culture? Not between the two centers, but thinking about them as a whole, um, is there a culture surrounding these kinds of places? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. So um, these places, they go beyond the technological use. So people do not go there only for to use the computer. You, you know, people use land houses to host birthday parties. Mm-hmm. Um, the mailman, you know, he's the mailman is also very scared to walk around the streets without really knowing where to go because of the the, the crime rate there. So he comes to the land houses and telecenters and just you know dump the, the mail of the community and people come in. And sort the mail out, you know, and try to find out whose mail belonged to whom. Um, they also, uh, it's a place where people socialize mostly. That's where they go and, um, you know, become aware of what's going on in the community. Um, also, Lynn House became very important, especially now because the, the, the slum is such a, a war zone. Mm-hmm. Every day you see new dead forest belongings. It's very hard for them where to go, and it wants to talk to So they go to, like, the people go to different land houses in different territories, and they use Facebook chat to communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. So that's how they keep their, their social um, relationships. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of culture going on there because, again, it's, it's a place where people socialize more than use technology. Okay. Now, one of the things, one of the other things you mentioned in the book is the idea of social currency with relation to technology, whether it's having, um, you know, a cell phone or a digital camera. I was wondering if you could talk about social currency with respect to technology and what you found. Well, I found that... Um, the materiality of the technology really matters when it comes to, uh, you know, the social currency. Um, so, you know, these these areas are considered to be poor, and the more access you have to these pieces of technology, um, the richer you are considered. So, if you have possession of, you know, cell phones, digital cameras, then you're more likely to have access to other services. Let's say, as I talk in the book, um, this kid had a cell phone, and, you know, for that moment, he needed a bike. So he traded for a bike, and he knows that because he has access to these, 
material things, he can always have the phone back because he can treat, you know, the bike back to the phone. The same thing would work to um, the the camera. And, you know, the, the, where they come from, this is the question. Like, the, the, you can never know where the camera comes from, where the cell phones come from. Mm-hmm. They say it always comes from the back alleys of the slums and, you know, um, Whatever that means, it means that it, it doesn't have a very um, legal trace, if you use <laughs> words. So, in money, having access to money in those areas is, is very hard. So that's why the, the, the gadgets, the technology really uh, matters to them because that's how they have access to what they want, you know. Okay. Now, let's talk about something that you talked about in the beginning and that was the coming uh, World Cup um, and the preparations that the country of Brazil is making for World Cup. Um, I was wondering if there is a parallel uh, with the movement of people out of these various favelas um, in an effort to either make room for stadiums or just to, I guess, beautify and the the idea of um, erasure and digital erasure. You also mentioned how uh, there are a couple of websites in Brazil where I guess people with means uh, make fun of poor people. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you saw any like uh, connection between trying to basically move poor people or marginalized groups of people out of the, um, I guess, consciousness, social consciousness, but at yes. the same time <laughs> making fun of them? I, I, I don't know. Yes, absolutely. So, like, in Rio de Janeiro, for example, I um, like came across the fact that the, the, the city government requested Google to take the word favela out of Google Maps. Mm, wow. So now in Rio, we have Favela do Alemão, Favela da Rocinha, but then they asked Google, Google to remove the word favela, which means urban slum, to moho, which means hill. Because usually favelas are on hills. Mm-hmm. So instead of having a urban, urban slum of something, you will have a, a hill of something, which, I mean, I, I don't understand and I don't really agree. And it's also dangerous for um, tourists, you know, if, if they don't know where they're going, they can end up going to a very violent area. And I'm not saying that every favela is dangerous, but it's usually, every favela is usually associated with a, a drug uh, cartel, a, a drug group, and they don't welcome uh, outsiders. So if you're there and you're an outsider and you go without really knowing that a hill is a, a slum, then you can get yourself in trouble. Mm-hmm. But the, the biggest issue, as you said, is the social sanit- sanitation or uh, what they call it's a pacifying movement of cleaning up the, the slums where you're pushing people away or arresting them for no reason. Sometimes they, they're, they're just there or, you know, because when, when things happen, you know, that they come in and start shooting everywhere people die, like innocent people die and some drug lords eventually die or get arrested but then the the marginalized people are the ones that really suffer the consequences of 
having this violent pacification that mm-hmm. they're suffering. So um, you you see online and offline, you know, this movement of making Brazil more beautiful for the World Cup and the Olympics. Now, has technology, with, you know, respect to this beautification, um, has technology been a means of activism for people living in favelas? Um, it has, but it not as much as has been in richer areas. Um, and this is something that I, I'm writing um, currently in my in my dissertation is that again last year during the Confederations Cup, which is a, a cup to to prepare the country for the World Cup, it's like right. a test. Right. During that Confederations Cup, um, the um, the, the richer classes um, were able to articulate themselves on Facebook and Twitter to go out on the streets and protest against, you know, the problems that Brazil face. And I was part of the protest because I, I was already doing field work and I wanted to know what it was all about. And I really wanted to know if some of my informants were involved in there. And they were not. And I was shocked because in Victoria, although it's a small city, I, you know, it was about 30,000 people on the streets and they couldn't find anyone from the territory I was doing my field work. And then the next day I asked them and they didn't know anything about it. They only got to know about the movement the day after because it was all over the news, all over the newspapers and TV. So you there you can see actually a divide even on Facebook of the poor and the rich. So there's much overlapping between this, the networks of the poor and the rich. Um, so they couldn't really add people from marginalized areas into the discussion how this um, protest should be organized. And they were all organized on Facebook again. Um, So then after it was, you know, advertised or reported on the mainstream news, Mm -hmm. that's when they were able to organize themselves and be part of the protest. But they were never part of the protest in, in the, you know, first stage because the, the networks never overlapped between the rich and the poor. So is this a problem to, of uh, access to information? Because you said that many of the, the poor people didn't really activate until after they saw it on the news. And so is it a real lag between what possibly could be going on or should be going on and getting that information to the people it affects? Yes, um, there is this um, aspect of it, but I would say what, uh, you know, the factor that really impacted this separation was the fact that um, the, the Brazilian society is so segregated that even online, when people claim to, to, to be a space where people socialize more, people connect with each other more, mm-hmm. So they didn't have this overlap between their their social network, even though access is is an issue. But then, if you had people, you know, having connections in the with you know richer classes and poor classes, then these people could serve as a bridge between the poor and the rich. But I'd say the reason why they were never part of the first protest in Brazil was because that information never got to them. Mm-hmm. 
you know, so again, the social networks of the rich don't really overlap with the social networks of the poor. Okay. Now, are there innovative uses of technology in the favelas that you perhaps don't see in the uh, richer parts of the cities? Um, it, it's hard to define like innovative mm-hmm. technology, but I can say uh, lots of creative use of technology. For example, um, internet service providers, they don't go into the slums because they think, you know, it's not a potential market for them. People will never sign up for the for their services and you know if one person has access to subscription then they would share with everyone in the slums and you see one of the photos in the book of those uh, ethernet cables going everywhere right um but you know it, it's a mistaken and very de- deterministic uh, so people on the very top of of the hill of the slum they don't have access to you know cable internet so what they do is the land house over there, they, the owner rents a place, like rents a house, which is closer to the, the urbanized area of, you know, the closest urbanized area of the slum. And then he brings an Ethernet cable from that house all the way up to the top of the, of the hill. And he, he connects, um, you know, the cables with the routers, you know, links, routers, and he, you know, nails it to light poles, and you see all kinds of uh, interesting, you know, cable um, handling happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, you know, it, it requires him to subscribe the internet from a richer area, so he can bring a cable all the way up. And, and we're talking about um, about two hundred meters, which is a, it's quite a lot, right? <laughs> 200 meters of cable, it's a lot. So you see a lot of connections happening. And then when he gets to the very top of the, the hill, he distributes uh, among the, the community that doesn't have access. Um, so he's the most loved and hate person. <laughs> because when it rains and, uh, you know, when it's too windy, you know, the cables break eventually. And then people become pretty upset because internet is out. Um also, uh, something that didn't come across my mind was that um, they hate how the, key, the how the keyboard is laid out. Mm-hmm. But they don't understand the QWERTY keyboard more because they were um, the QWERTY keyboard was laid out so the the keys on typewriters wouldn't jam as you would you know type you know as you would type. Mm-hmm. Um, but now with computers, you know. <clears throat> Uh, keys don't get jammed anymore. So it doesn't really make sense. But because here in the U.S., there's this um, historic um, approach to the keyboard, so then it makes sense. It's more for historical reasons than anything else. But in Brazil, in the slums of of Brazil, they never had access to typewriters. So having a keyboard with keys laid out in a way that doesn't make sense, then doesn't make sense to them so they would not be motivated to use it so they do a lot of tinkering with the keyboard they try to put in alphabetical order um they try to reprogram the the keyboard to better suit their needs Mm -hmm. which i thought it was absolutely amazing they were more critical of the keyboard than most of the people i've ever interacted with 
Well, great. So one of the things that you mentioned earlier in the podcast was the idea that you wanted to think about how to use technology to bring people a better life. And so I want to ask you, what do you mean? Like, how do you operationalize the definition of better life? What does that mean with respect to technology? Great. So it's, um, like a million dollar question, right? Right. Like how do you make technology, you know, beneficial to the poor? I mean, in, in fields of ICT for D, this has been the question that no one has responded to answer. And I think it's, it's a question that will take a long time to respond. But I see, you know, technology being beneficial to these people in terms of having access to, um, governmental services, government services, just because for them it's very hard to go to, let's say, the city hall and deal with their bureaucracies. And you're talking about Brazil, which is a a, a heavily bureaucratic state. Um, And then you see, you know, technology is being beneficial as a way to keep their social capital because, you know, they can break the cartel walls and manage to... Uh, being in touch with their relatives. So those are the little things that we need to pay attention to in order to identify the, the benefits and, you know, or the, you know, how technology is harming, you know, a tech, uh, uh, community. So th- that's why I, I, I truly believe that ethnography or, you know, going to the fields is the best way to see how technology is being appropriated for which purposes. So you can really identify how it can be beneficial and how it can not, you know, it's not being beneficial. Um, so again, you know, having access to, to information doesn't really need lead to, you know, access to knowledge. Mm-hmm. That's, and that's the key. We need to find a way to turn that access to information to, you know, access to knowledge. And that has been the, 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 the key, um, challenge that we've been facing with technology and marginalized areas. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's, I know, go, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 continue, please. No, so I was going to say that um, I do, I, I'm, I'm able to identify beneficial fa- uh, factors of technology for these people. But again, it's too contextualized. It's, it's beneficial to them. Maybe what is, what is beneficial to them it's not beneficial to a uh, marginalized community community in Colombia, let's say, Mm -hmm. you know, and and that's the thing we need to pay attention to, especially when, when developing policies to, to let's say bridge the digital divide, if there's such a thing Mm -hmm. that these policies cannot be generalizable. They have to be very specific to the context they're dealing with. And I think this way then, we can find a way that technology can help, you know, these marginalized people. They're, you know, technology is not the solution. I, I truly believe it's not the solution. It's a way to get to the solution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. So, Favela Digital, you have a companion website, right? Yes. And that's F-A-V-E-L-A-Digital.com? Correct. And so people can go there and, and look at some of the photographs and, and some of the text from the book? 
correct? Yeah, and they, and they can also get to know more about the the NGO that mm-hmm. partnered with me in this book. Okay. It's called um, Varal, and you know, there's a link to their website there, and there's also um, the the link to the photographer's Facebook page and and. This book is all going to like all the money made with this book is going to the photographers. You know, I'm just keeping the line on my CV. <laughs> <laughs> the money's going to them, which is it's for a better cause. Right, right. And so, if we want to read more from you, where can we find any more? Do you have a blog or are you on Twitter? Yes, I I have a web page which mm-hmm. is dnimmer.com. Uh, there's a blog, which a blog that I'm an editor. It's called socialinformaticsblog.com. And on Twitter, I am there too, David Niemer. Okay. Um, yep. Yeah, I guess that's where you can find me. And where can they find the book? Is it on Amazon? It's on Amazon, yes. Amazon. Um, this, um, the publisher is based in Brazil, so they don't do the distribution themselves in America. So I had to bring my the books myself to be distributed. But it, it's it's an Amazon, you know, if you have Prime, it goes with the Prime plan. Okay. It's 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 sold through Amazon, yeah. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much again, David, for being on. Um, this has been New Books in Technology. Go check out Favela Digital. And David, obrigado. Oh, and uh, <laughs> we'll see you next week on New Books in Technology. Thank you.